All right, if you have a Bible, I want to go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, you can pull that up on your phone or uh, your iPad or your Bible, Acts chapter 2, and we are going to be in, starting in verse 36, and I want to read verses 36 through 41, and so as I'm doing that, if you could just stand with me as I read this passage and just pay close attention as we'll We'll be focusing on these verses today. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, it says this, Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You may be seated. Sorry, camera people, I'm just getting my water. I'm coming back, camera people. There's somebody in the booth going, where's he going? I can't keep up with this man. All right. Great passage. And you note this passage the significance of the name of Jesus, amen? And you note in this passage that you've got the name of Jesus, you've got the idea of your children, this promise is for your children, and then you've got the third idea, which is save yourselves from this crooked generation. Crooked generation. Today I want to talk to you about vision. Vision. And the one thing we need as a church moving forward is we need a vision. We need a vision that's measurable, and we need a vision that's biblical, and we need a vision that's really super clear. We need a vision. vision. And so today I want to talk about a transitional vision. You're going to have a statement and everything. It's going to be really fancy. But we believe that God is taking us somewhere. And vision is really important. In our lives, it's really important in our church. I had a professor one time, a professor of preaching, and he always talked about that a good sermon always has a target. It always has a purpose. And he said, if you don't have a purpose or you don't have a target or something you're aiming at with your sermons, then everybody's going to be really confused. And he had a saying. I think I've told you it before. He said, aim at nothing and you hit it every time. And that's how life is. If you're not aiming at anything, you're not going anywhere. And that's how churches can be. Churches are are really infamous for not being clear about their vision. We tend to over-spiritualize everything and make everything sound really spiritual. And it's very important that we get clear on a vision. Vision is so important. And not only is vision important for life, it's, it's important when you've got diversity. Vision brings unity and diversity. 
You know, take Sherry Baby and I. We are opposites. You couldn't find two more different people in the world. I am a loudmouth guy. I talk loud. I'm obnoxious. People get annoyed with me. She's as sweet as you can be. Everybody likes to be with her. So I'm loud. She's a servant. I'm like the waves in a river, and she's like the current in the stream. Can I get an amen? Right? And how can two opposite people love each other so much, like Sherry Baby and I, and the answer is we have a similar vision, a preferred future. And when you have a similar vision and a preferred future, you can be a diverse group of people, but you're moving in the right direction. And when that preferred future is inspiring, you're willing to delay the need for instant gratification in the present to chase after a vision, a preferred future. I might see myself in, in four weeks as being 20 pounds lighter. That's a vision. But that has to become so compelling to me that I'm willing to not eat sweets after I preach this sermon today which I probably will because not, that's not very compelling to me, but a vision. And so as a church, we need a preferred future that we're all chasing after. And so what's our vision? What's our vision? Let me give you a statement and give you a preferred future for the Tabernacle Church. And the statement is this. We are a multi-generational church, and we exist to encourage and equip more families to follow Jesus in a fallen world. Let me say that again. We are a multi-generational church, and we exist to encourage and equip more families to follow Jesus in a fallen world. First is, is that measurable? The answer is yes. I mean, in 12 months from now, we can look back and say, did we achieve the vision? Did we achieve that preferred future? We'll be able to tell. Did we help more families follow Jesus in a fallen world? We'll be able to know. We are a multi-generational church. We exist to encourage and equip more families to follow Jesus in a fallen world. But is it biblical? That's important. Is the vision biblical? And that's where this text comes in. Because what this text does is it shows us that, that, that this vision is flowing from the text. We're not imposing this vision on the text. It, it flows from a biblical worldview. And this is a great example in this text because this text kind of gives us three pillars of our vision and, and it helps us to outline what this vision, what this preferred future might look like. The first pillar that it highlights is that, that this vision is a Christ-centered vision. We have a Christ-centered vision. We want to help families follow Jesus. And we see that, that the church is founded on Jesus Christ. When we come to the text, Acts chapter 2, 
This is a chapter about the birth of the church or the inauguration of the church of Jesus Christ in terms of having a permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost comes and the church receives the, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit so that the church can be witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the Holy Spirit comes in power and the, and the apostles in the church began to speak of the mighty deeds of God in different languages that they don't know. And people think they're drunk. And Peter gets up and says, we're not drunk. The power of God has come down upon us so that we can witness to you. And he preaches, Peter does, he preaches the first Christian sermon ever preached post-Pentecost. This inaugural sermon is all about Jesus being a, a, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And to be honest with you, this sermon of Peter is kind of like a there's a heat-seeking missile coming your way and it's called the judgment of God. And the sign of that judgment is that the Spirit has come in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. But there is an escape from the judgment of God. And the escape clause to the judgment of God is the name of Jesus Christ. So the summary of his sermon is found in verse 36. This is the summary of his sermon. He says, let all of the house of Israel know. That God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. It says in verse 37. Now when they heard this they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles. Brothers what shall we do? And he said repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to say that 3,000 people were baptized, and that was the birth of the church as we know it today. And our vision is a Christ-centered vision. What is the goal of the church? It is to lead people to Jesus. It is to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And to say that there is salvation in no one else except for Jesus Christ. Therefore, our vision is a Christ-centered vision. Or let me put it to you this way. We want to be a Christ-centered church. You say, well, what is a Christ-centered church? Like, what's that look like? There's a lot of churches that say they want to be Christ-centered, but we might question whether they really are. Like, what are the criteria of being a Christ-centered church? A church where people are helped to follow Jesus. And there's three characteristics in this text of a Christ-centered church. Let me give those to you really quick. First of all, a Christ-centered church brings people under conviction. A Christ-centered church brings people under conviction. Peter says to them, you killed the Christ. The reason why the Christ was crucified is because of you. It was your sin that placed the Son of God on the cross. It was your rebellion away from God 
that caused the Father to have to send his Son to die on the cross for you? He said to Jewish people, people who know the Bible better than we will ever know the Bible, he said, you Jewish people, you who had the covenant and the prophets, you who had the Old Testament, you crucified Christ. It says then there, it says in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And the word that's being used, cut to the heart, it's literally the word we use for conviction. And there, see, Jesus had said, Jesus had said in, in John chapter 16, he had said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he would come and bring conviction to the world because of unrighteousness. What we Americans think, see, the way we Americans think of a Holy Spirit church is that the Holy Spirit is either a gentleman or the Holy Spirit is Santa Claus that brings us everything we want. That's what we Americans want. We want the American dream and we think that the Holy Spirit is some kind of, some kind of, some kind of, of means of getting the very thing that we want, our prosperity and our perfect health and our perfect home and our perfect car. He's not a gentleman here. He's not bringing people what they want here. He's bringing conviction. And how can a person be transformed unless they come under conviction? How can you even want to be something different unless you're told by God himself you're not what you should be? We want you say, this is, this is the craziest vision I've ever heard. That's right, it's crazy. It's whacked. Everybody say, whacked. We want people to come into our ministry and come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because you cannot become a new person until you come under conviction. And that is the truth. You have to, you have to realize, I've, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against a holy God, my maker and my creator. I've tried to live a life for God-sized results without submitting to God himself. We say, well, I wasn't there. I wasn't there when Jesus was crucified. But don't you see that the Bible says that the reason why Jesus died is because I've sinned against God. Conviction conviction. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He cuts our heart. He comes and he brings a burden and, and, he, and he makes us feel the weight and the burden and the heaviness. And it's the very opposite because what, what culture and society will do is it will come to you and say, oh, you should never feel shame. Oh, you should never feel guilt. Oh, you should never feel uncomfortable. Oh, you should just, you should just create your own world exactly as you want it. And don't let anybody bring conviction to you. And that's the way to die. That's the way to death. That's the way to ruinous relationships. Christ-centered church brings conviction because a Christ-centered church preaches human sin. Your church has, beloved, listen to me, 
I say this with compassion. I say it for myself, for my family, for you, for all of us. I say this. We have to know that we are full of potential to do really bad things. You have to know that. You have to know that you're full of potential to do things to people that you love that are not good. We are sinful, fallen people. And you know what we need? We need the Savior. And that's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He cuts our heart. But praise God, he does it like with a, like a surgeon's scalpel. He doesn't, he, doesn't take a, he doesn't take a big old sword and lop off our head. Can I get an amen? He's like that surgeon that says, you got cancer, but I am a surgeon. What would Jesus say? Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy. He said that to the Pharisees. I didn't come for those who think that they've got it all together. Jesus in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, he gave us the architecture of the church, and he said that the architecture of the church was not a cathedral, but an emergency room. He said, I am the great physician, and the reason why I've come is not to tell you, pat you on the head and tell you you're all right. The reason why I've come is to make you a new person. And so the second feature of a Christ-centered church is, is comfort. They say, well, what shall we do to be saved? What, what do I do to, to, to deal with this conviction of sin? And Peter gives them the comfort of the gospel. He says in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. Isn't that good news? And God comes to us in Jesus. And he says, all you've got to do is repent. And repent just means doing a double take or 180 degree turn. And, and you're going in this way and you're running from God. And you're, you're in sin and you're, and you're willing to give in to temptation. And, and the Holy Spirit brings conviction. And you hear that word repent and you do a 180 degree turn. And the moment you turn around, I guarantee you, your heavenly father will be there ready to wrap you in his arms. A Christ-centered church brings conviction so that a Christ-centered church can bring comfort and forgiveness. And you can be forgiven. Anyone watching online can be forgiven. Anyone here can be forgiven. You just turn away from your old life and God will give you a new life as you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. As you believe in Jesus. You say, there's that baptism again. You know what I'm saying? Of course, we always got to explain this. Like, there's that baptism. Of course, baptism is not... I mean, the text could be saying it one, one of two ways. Like, in order to be forgiven, you've got to be water baptized. Be baptized, then you'll be forgiven. Or it means get baptized because you're already forgiven. And you can interpret that verse either way. And so you need the rest of the scripture to, to clarify it. Whenever you, whenever you have a, a, an obscure verse that you're reading and you need to interpret, you go to non-obscure passages to interpret the obscure passages. And we know that we're saved by faith alone. The moment you believe in Jesus, you're forgiven. That the moment you surrender your life to Christ and say, yes, Jesus is my Savior, 
The moment you do that, you're forgiven. And so then we get baptized. The comfort of forgiveness leads us to the freedom to be obedient to God. And he says, be baptized. And so we get baptized. We're like, where is the water? Tell me where the river is that we're going to do this dunking. Or if you're in Wisconsin and there's snow, where's the baptismal tank? Can I get an amen? Show it to me. So I can't wait to get in that water and show people that I have been forgiven. If you've, never been forg- if you've never been baptized as a result of believing in Jesus, let us know that. We're going to have a baptism service soon enough. But a Christ-centered church, see, it brings conviction. But it brings conviction that leads to the comfort of forgiveness. And we have a vision where people will come and say, man, this was a place where I like, like God got in my face here. But then God showed me his love. God showed me his forgiveness. And by the way, Christian, even once we've done this, this is important. Once we've done this, we keep doing this over and over again, don't we? We keep availing ourselves as followers of Jesus to be convicted. We keep availing ourselves to the church and to the word of God and to the gospel to be comforted. A Christ-centered church brings conviction, it brings comfort, and then finally the third thing is a Christ-centered church brings communion with God. He says in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and what? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know what that means? That means that the life of God will live in your soul by the Holy Spirit. And why does God remove our sins through Jesus? So that he can move into our life. You can have communion with God Almighty. And before we met Jesus and before we met God, we were trying to be our own God. We were trying to build and shape our own idols, our own functional saviors. And we said, well, this is going to save me. And this is my functional savior. And this is what I run to. Or, or we imagine ourselves as being God. And conviction tells us that, no, you're not God. But then the comfort and the communion of the gospel tells us that God will come and live in our life and empower our life. Christ-centered church leads to communion and fellowship. Why does Jesus remove demons? So that we can live with God. Why does Jesus remove our sin? So that we can live with God. Why Why does Jesus bring forgiveness? So that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And what begins to happen is we begin to redo in this world what God has done in our life. We begin to forgive begin to love our enemies. We begin to turn the other cheek. We begin to go the extra mile. We, we let go of resentment and anger and bitterness and sinfulness. And we begin to 
to let go of those things that we've been holding on to, which, which we've propped up and, and, and said, I'm in control, I want control. And what communion with God tells us is that we're not in control, he's in control, and we let go of it. And we let the love of God fill our life through the Holy Spirit. And it sets us free. And it prepares us for relationships. That's a Christ-centered church. We want to encourage and equip more families to follow Jesus. We want to be a Christ-centered church. We want people to come under our ministry and come under conviction, come under comfort, come under communion. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so when we think about the gospel, we go, yeah, man, we're calling people to know Jesus and to follow Jesus and to embrace this message of the gospel. But where shall we go? And the Bible tells us time and time again, in fact, I never saw it. It literally took COVID and social unrest for me to finally see that the target of a church should be families in the world. I, I was shocked by, by finding this out. And so the second pillar of our vision is that it's, it's family-focused. It's a vision that is family-focused. And I think that's biblical. Look at what he says in verse 39. He says, the promise is for you and for your children. This promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And I love that last little clause because it means that God is sovereign in salvation. He knows exactly who's going to believe. And he knows exactly who each church is going to reach with the gospel. So there's comfort in that. But you see that the promise is for you and for your children. And if you read the book, I never saw this before. I don't know how I did. I went to seminary. I spent all this money on school. Never saw it. But if you read Acts, you see that the church is reaching households. There's these whole household salvations. And you see here, this is for you and your children. If you, I don't have a slide for it, but if you have your Bible, you can go to Acts chapter 4. And verse 4, it's a very controversial verse, but I can explain it to you in a moment. I mean, it just takes me a moment. Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says... But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men, you could circle men or underline men, the number of men came to be about 5,000. Our culture's like, how dare they only count the men? How dare they only count the men? What about the women? And Luke, who wrote the book of, of Acts, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke, Luke is one of the most egalitarian gospel writers around, and yet he emphasizes the men. And why does he em emphasize the men? Because he's emphasizing that heads of households have been reached, and if you reach heads of households, you will reach the whole house. And by the way, that's still true today. If you reach daddy, the likelihood of the whole family coming increases by a big, huge percentage than if you reach mama, because sometimes mama will come to church, but daddy won't. But if daddy comes to church, mama always comes to church. Can I get an amen? We got to love some men. We do. 
See, what he's saying is, is that family is important. This is for you and your children. This is a church is family focused. And of course, you have unique circumstances. So you got single moms. So we got to be about single moms who are trying to raise kids or single dads trying to raise kids and, and bring them into the family and say, this promise of the gospel is for your children so that your children can be transformed, so that your children can grow up and can one day have a family that's following God in their life. This is for you and for your children. And the more I thought about this, I'm taking off my glasses. I'm so serious. The more I thought about this, the more I realized that one of the major plot lines of the Bible is what? Family. Isn't that, isn't that the truth? It's as old as Genesis chapter 1. There are some Christians that think that Genesis chapter 1 happened millions of years ago. I'm not one of them, but I think God can create an old earth. Don't, don't you? Can I get an amen? He can also create a 30-year-old man and a 30-year-old woman named Adam and Eve. But it doesn't matter how old you think the earth is or when you think creation happened. God created everything out of nothing. And the first thing he does is he says to Adam and Eve, he says, uh, come together, become one flesh, multiply, and fill the earth with children. And then you start tracking that through, and, and you see that, that, that family is not a culturally constructed reality, that family is a divine institution by which God is glorified and society is blessed. That the idea of a nuclear family, a mom and a dad and a children, is from God and is for the blessing of the world. And no wonder. Because what's culture trying to do? It's trying to destroy and disrupt the nuclear family. Because the last thing Satan wants is that families would, would be healthy and marriages would be sane. And children would be sane in families. And everything in culture is putting the family under siege. And where's the one place that a family should be able to go to find refuge and help and equipping and encouraging? The family should be able to go to church. Can I get an amen? Absolutely. And you and I, we have to ask ourselves a question. Is it the will of God that every man, woman, and child belong to a healthy church community? And the answer is yes and amen. And in fact, Sherry and I experienced, because, you know, I was a pastor for years. I mean, I've been around the block a few times. Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> His belly. Anyways, I don't know why I rubbed my belly. Anyways, I'm sorry about that. I didn't realize, because I've been preaching for so long, I've been preaching for so long, that I didn't realize how important that church was for our family. Because there I was in Chicago trying to start a church from scratch. We didn't know a soul. Then COVID comes. And we had visited all these churches. And believe me, some of those churches, wow. And some of them were really good, but... But COVID came, and you couldn't go to church, and I had no idea how important it was just to go to church. Seriously, no clue. 
that going to church and being at a chair and singing some songs and talking to people before and afterwards and hearing a sermon from the preacher from the Bible, whether it was relevant to my life or not, I had no idea how important it was. And when I finally got to go back to a church that we finally chose to go to regularly, and I sat under that pastor, and it was like, it was like water in a dry and thirsty land. And my marriage needed it, and my kids needed it, and my family needed it. And why? Because God made me to be devoted to him and to be Christ-centered through the means of a church community. And the perseverance of faith is a community project. And God calls every man, woman, and child to belong to a healthy church community. That's why it's right and good and biblical for us to say, man, we exist to encourage. Everybody say encourage. Encourage and equip more families to follow Jesus in a fallen world. And I was thinking about Babylon because I feel like we're living in Babylon, don't you? I mean, man, like, like the days of doing cute little games in church and stuff like that, it's over, man. We're living in Babylon. And I thought about the Israelites living in Babylon when they were in exile. And there in the Old Testament, God judged them because they had sinned and rebelled against God, and God allowed the enemies to take them into exile, into Babylon, and and there's this great passage in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verses 4 and following. And it tells God's people how to live in Babylon. How do you live in a fallen culture? He says in Jeremiah chapter 29 starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem, to Babylon. How do we live in Babylon? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And tell me, how do we bless Babylon while we're living in it? We have healthy families. We get married. We have children. And our homes become little churches where we learn, we talked about last week, you got when two people get married, it's two sinners. And when two sinners have babies, guess what? Those babies are sinners. So you got a bunch of sinners trying to live in Babylon. And how do you do that? You invite God's word and his presence into your families. Family is an antidote to the chaos of culture. Man, we want to be a refuge. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters. That's why we call God our Father who art in heaven. That's why the church is called the Bride of Christ. That's why Revelation ends with the big family feast with, with Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. And, and there are all the angels. 
angels and were sitting around a family table having a feast in the kingdom of God. And the reason why God gives us those pictures is to bake into our mind that family, a mom and a dad and children is the way God blesses a society, especially if that family is rooted in Christ. So we must be about families. And when you're driving home today and you're going into your neighborhood, you know in your neighborhood is represented an infinite number of problems. And marriages are struggling today. Some of us, we've gone through that in our marriages. We know. And, and parents are trying to figure out how to raise their kids as they go to school and they hear worldviews that are completely antithetical to everything that God stands for, what the Bible says. And this is a place where as you're driving through your community and your neighborhoods, you can say, man, we've got, we've got a community and a refuge and we've got the teaching and we've got the word of God and we've got encouragement and we've got people who can connect with them and, and we, can, we can see marriages healed and we can see, we can see parents equipped and, and, and we can see students who are, who are giving teaching so that they can be bold in their schools. We are a family-focused church. We're Christ-centered, family-focused. We exist to encourage and equip more families to follow Jesus in a fallen world. That leads us to the third pillar of our vision. We are counterculture. Countercultural. As a church, we're Christ-centered, we're family-focused, and we are countercultural. That is not a hidden agenda. That is a specific strategy. We see this from the text. What does Peter say? He says, look at verse 40, Acts chapter 2, verse 40. He says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And if you read the New Testament, and you read what the New Testament is telling Christians, you see that the New Testament is telling Christians to not allow culture to live in them, to save themselves from, from their crooked generation. And there's really two, I mean, well... In evangelical Protestant churches in America, there's two philosophies to culture. One philosophy is that the church exists to convert culture. Everybody say convert. Convert. These churches, well-meaning churches, Jesus-loving churches, they say, well, the church needs to engage the culture, build a bridge, engage its systems and its engage its processes, and try to convert culture into a Christ-centered culture. The second approach and philosophy is not to convert culture, but to subvert culture. In other words, to live in Babylon, to live in the city of man, and to represent the city of God, and to represent the coming kingdom of God, and to give God's people 
the word of God and prayer and community so that they will not be overtaken by the world. Our approach, which I've talked about this so many times, I talked about this in my candidating sermon so that you would know what kind of pastor you're voting for. But my philosophy and our vision is to be an alternative to culture, to give people an alternative worldview to live and base their life on. To say, as Peter said here, save yourselves from this crooked generation. To show that the truth of God is completely different than the teaching of man-centered society. You say, in what way? Every generation tries to build a great life without fearing and reverencing God. Ultimately, every generation attempts to kill and suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And the church is a lighthouse. It's the salt of the earth. It's the light of the world. And it says to people, save yourselves from a life that does not include the centrality of the supremacy and the sufficiency of God. That's what we mean. You see, see we're... We're encouraging and we're equipping more families to follow Jesus in a fallen world. The world is lost, but we are found. The world is dark, but Jesus is light. The world is unrighteousness, but we are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. The world excuses and rationalizes self-destructive sin We seek the Spirit to increase in holiness and to look more like Jesus by grace through faith in him. We are a countercultural church. We're a rescue mission. We're a missionary outpost. We bring our families and we bring our friends and we invite our community to come here to the refuge and say, there is shelter from the storm here. There is health and life here. There is God here. There is Christ here. There is love and truth. There is justice and mercy. There is, there is all the things that the kingdom of God will ultimately be in a foretaste form as we have community together. And of course, we're broken. We've been hurt by this world. Some of our families haven't held together. Some of our marriages didn't work out. Some of our kids aren't following God. But you know what we can do? We can minister to people, and we can help other people get their families right and have the love of God in their life. We exist to encourage and equip more families to follow Jesus in a fallen world. Say, man, how do I wrap this up? And the way I would wrap this up is just say, man, we got to start becoming a church and start thinking about how do we become a church for families? How do we we make sure we're welcoming people into our church? How can we be a multi-generational church that's that's ready to be a, a community of refuge and truth? How can we start becoming a church for people who haven't even come here yet? Next week, we're going to go into the key values that will help us make these things come true as we look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. But I'll stop there. We'll pick it up there next week.
Let me pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you so much for your grace and your love. Lord, I thank you for the Holy Spirit who brings conviction to my heart, but comfort in your forgiveness, love, and grace. Thank you, God, that you give me an alternative vision for life. Thank you, God, that you give me the community of your people to be with, to love, and to be loved by. Thank you, God, that we don't have to be perfect or all together, but we can come to you knowing that you are all together. You are perfect. You're our rock and our refuge. God, we give you this church, and we pray that whatever vision that we might presume to preach, we pray that you would shape it so that it's your vision for our church, not mine or ours, but yours. That the vision and the future that you have for us is one of welfare and prosperity in terms of having peace with you and peace with one another. And God, if there's anyone here who's not repented and believed in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, help them to turn away from this world, to turn away from themselves and to believe in Jesus Christ and to be baptized. God, we love you because you first loved us. And we give you our church. In Jesus' name, amen.